Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, blood clot concerns lead the U.S. to recommend a pause of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, just as Canada is set to receive its shipments of the single-dose vaccine. On a day when Canada reports its first case of blood clots in a person who received the AstraZeneca vaccine, we'll have the latest on Canada's response. The NDP leader will be here to discuss his pre-budget chat with the Prime Minister, with Jagmeet Singh still ready to back the budget, no matter what, to keep the minority government afloat. And a closer look at the federal government's pandemic lifeline for Air Canada that includes customer refunds, restored regional service, and billions of dollars in loans and equity investment. We'll begin tonight with concerns about the side effects of a second COVID-19 vaccine. First, it was blood clots linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. And in fact, Health Canada today reported the first case in Canada of a person who received the AstraZeneca vaccine suffering now from blood clots. That woman from Quebec is recovering at home. And now concerns about blood clots linked to the single-dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration in the States have ordered a pause in the use of the Johnson & Johnson product in the U.S. after six women there developed severe stroke-like illnesses because of blood clots in the brain. The women were between the ages of 18 and 48 years old, and the symptoms developed 6 to 13 days after vaccination. One of the women died. So far, nearly 7 million doses of the J&J have been administered in the United States, so these dangerous side effects clearly very rare. So what about Canada? This country is set to receive the first shipments of Johnson & Johnson at the end of April. Today, federal health officials announced they will be subjecting the vaccine to more investigation. But the Prime Minister said Canada has no plans to cancel its purchase of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, at least not yet. We are still on track to receiving our first shipment of the Johnson & Johnson uh, Janssen vaccine uh, by the end of this month. Uh, But obviously, we're following closely uh, developments in the United States, and uh, we can assure uh, everyone that Health Canada will, every step of the way, uh, put the health of Canadians first and foremost uh, in any decisions we make around uh, distributing vaccines. But it also uh, goes to highlight um, that it was important that we uh, signed deals with a large range of potential vaccine makers because uh, we didn't know which ones would be most effective, which ones would arrive uh, early. Uh, that's why Canadians are well served. And even without uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, uh, we are going to be receiving over 44 million doses uh, by the end of June. You, you have seen the process once already that the regulator in Health Canada follows when there is a signal of an adverse effect following immunization uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So I expect them to do the same due diligence connecting to the international regulatory authorities like the Food and Drug Administration in the United States and gather information from them as well as the manufacturer We've heard about the um, rare side effects. I think it's six cases of these unusual blood clots with low platelets following 6.8 million doses administered in the United States. Health Canada, we need all of this data and do 
in the Canadian context, the benefit and risk analysis. Dr. Lisa Barrett is an infectious disease expert and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, Dr. Barrett, uh, good to speak with you again. Thanks for uh, your time in uh, speaking to me today. Appreciate it as always. No, never a problem. Listen, how concerned are you, and I suppose how concerned should the rest of us be about this news about uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and, and the possible links to blood clots? Well, it, as you probably are aware, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has a similar but not the same platform or backbone as another uh, vaccine that's been giving some issues in the past, the AstraZeneca. Um, both have a common cold virus skeleton in the background that's used to help deliver the uh, part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And like the AstraZeneca, there's been a report recently of a very, very rare, almost one in a million report of a very special type of blood clot, perhaps similar to the AstraZeneca version. How concerned am I? Well, I'm concerned that if we have a pause that our vaccine rollout, particularly in the US and maybe Canada, will be slow. Uh, but do I think that makes it a globally unsafe vaccine? No. Do I think it's the right thing to pause? Yes. Listen, we're just as you and I speak, uh, just getting news here from the Public Health Agency of Canada, and I'm just going to read right from this statement. Uh, it has received a report of a case of an individual living in Canada who's experienced a very rare adverse event involving blood clots with low platelets following immunization with Covishield. Uh, that's the Serum Institute AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, this person is at home now recovering, the first reported case in Canada. Uh, should that change our thinking at all? Because now we've heard about these other incidents in Europe in particular, and now uh, it looks like we might have a case this connected to AstraZeneca. Right. Well, the European Medical Agency had been um, further investigating these low platelets, special blood clots um, further, and it really wasn't able to exclude a link, though very, very rare, with the AstraZeneca and or the Covishield. And so I think... It's not unexpected that after we had given some doses that we might see a case. I think it was the right thing in Canada to pause our vaccine plan for people with AstraZeneca mm -hmm. 55 and below. Uh, and certainly I hope that this person's doing well, but it will be interesting and, and very important to see how old this person is and what the other circumstances were around their health status. Um, obviously the right call to have put a restriction on younger folks getting this vaccine, which is, by the way, where we've seen, at least to date, the vast majority of these special blood clots in AstraZeneca, as well as with the Johnson & Johnson six or seven cases that are being reported, women 18 to 48 years old. Right. Um, the Prime Minister said today that Canada will go ahead with its planned purchase of the uh, 10 million doses uh, to begin delivery at uh, the end of this month of Johnson & Johnson. Uh, you sort of touched on it. Is that is that the right decision as far as you're concerned to, at least for now, go ahead uh, with the purchase and, and you know, get those vaccines to Canada, at, at least for now, while Health Canada looks at, uh, you know, uh, whatever evidence it can get from Johnson & Johnson about the safety of these vaccines? Right. So I do think it's the right thing to continue to purchase and have available this vaccine. In different age groups, other than the one I've just mentioned, this does seem to be a very, very safe vaccine. 
And don't forget, we are talking a one in a million risk here, even when we're looking at that other age group. The thing is, it really is very important for vaccines to be entirely safe. How much of a vaccine you disseminate, if there's an exceptionally rare risk of a side effect, depends on what your day-to-day -day risk of COVID is. If you live in an area where COVID cases are completely uncontrolled, then certainly your risk of a very serious problem or death is far higher from COVID than the vaccine. And so decisions are gonna to have to be made at local, regional areas around vaccine administration. So go ahead, purchase for Canada, see where we go with this. But very likely, I suspect, we will be restricting the use of these cold virus backbone vaccines to people in older age groups where this particular rare uh, blood clot doesn't happen to happen. Right. So we know that Health Canada is, is on an ongoing basis reviewing the, the AstraZeneca information. Now, uh, the, I, I guess that process uh, uh, takes on um, a little bit more significance now that we have this one case reported in Canada. But uh, Health Canada has also asked uh, Janssen, which is the pharmaceutical arm of Johnson & Johnson, to provide more data on the cases of uh, potential blood clotting and that that will be analyzed and our health experts here will decide whether it's safe. Uh, can you give us a sense of what Health Canada might be looking at? Here, here you have these potential cases. You have, um, I'm not sure what evidence exists to be able to, to look at and try to, um, you know, conclude that there is a, con a connection or not. So do you have some sense of, for us of what, what the Canadian side will do when it gets this information? Mm -hmm. It will depend. They will ask for a lot of information around who the patients are, what occurred, what the other medical conditions are that these folks have. There may be some underlying reason why some people are more susceptible than other people. Uh, for example, a history perhaps of blood clots or some particular autoimmune disease, a bad reaction in the past to some types of blood thinners like heparin may be a factor. And so they'll wanna get all that information on the medical history of these folks, exact timing, as well as to make sure we know lot numbers and the exquisite detail if it's available around the vaccine administration. And then they'll put all that information together, look at the relative risks, and then make some recommendations. I think it's important for Canadians to remember that we also have other tools at the moment in our toolbox. And so a pause is not the uh, complete failure of our vaccine program, it just changes the pace. Mm -hmm. And that also means that governments are going to have to be very, very proactive about keeping restrictions in place to prevent our case numbers getting worse as we move forward, particularly if the vaccine rollout may be a little slower. Let me pick up on that to, to finish our conversation today. Uh, we're seeing uh, a, a third wave that is hitting parts of the country uh, harder than other parts of the country and harder than any other time in the pandemic in some cases. A lot of Canadians are wondering, look, how did we let this happen? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think people had gotten very tired and um, governments got a little tired and uh, people wanted to be hopeful a little more perhaps than we should have been. Um, I think there are certain numbers in this pandemic that we now know are important. If we see community spread at a certain level, if we see the reproductive number of the virus at a certain level, and if we see the average case number over seven days going up at a certain rate, we know that those are bad signs and things need to be definitively 
locked down, unfortunately, to stop spread until we have full vaccination. That didn't happen. And I do honestly think it is very insufficient to have different provinces with a different risk of death from COVID. The federal government may need to provide, I think, some firmer guidance around objective numbers, not how to do it, but when they need to do things in different provinces or else we're going to continue to see disparities build in different provinces. And that's very on Canadian as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the federal government seems to continue to point to uh, it, it. It seems to want to focus on the successes provinces have been having in, in managing uh, their own outbreaks. You're, you're saying that the evidence suggests that the federal government needs to be perhaps pro providing a little uh, stricter or a uh, little clearer guidance on expectations for keeping people safe. I am because it is very difficult at times for provinces to be able to uh, be quite as definitive and sharp and quick acting, uh, providing federal guidance that says everyone in Canada will be facing um, similar sets of guidelines is very effective. That does not mean that every region in Canada would be on the same orders, but if people reach or a region reaches certain guidance, catastrophe prevention numbers, then it should be a federally mandated plan to help those provinces by saying, look, you have to make a plan to shut things down appropriately. And sometimes being the federal government as the heavy is going to have to be important. We've seen it work the wrong way. This is not working in many provinces right now. All right, Dr. Lisa Barrett, uh, thanks for your perspective this evening. Good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. The Prime Minister continued his virtual meetings with opposition leaders today ahead of next week's budget. He spoke with Green Party leader Anami Paul and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh this afternoon. Prime Minister needs support of at least one of the major opposition parties to survive the budget confidence vote in the House of Commons. If not, we'll be into a snap federal election. Jagmeet Singh has already said he won't let the Liberal government fall during the pandemic, says Canada doesn't need an election now. Has his thinking changed at all after his discussion with the Prime Minister this afternoon? Let's find out. Jagmeet Singh's with me. Uh, Mr. Singh, good to see you again. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Good Look, to be here. How did the meeting go? Meeting went well. I raised the concerns that I said I would raise. Um, one of the major concerns I raised is that we fought hard for paid sick leave, but the delivery by the Liberal government has left uh, a lot lacking, and that's making sure it's more flexible, easier to obtain, uh, quicker to obtain, and make sure that the amount covers someone's salary. So that's what we fought for. We said, I said that it's got to be improved. It's an important tool to getting people to stay home when they're sick so they don't have to go in to work and make the impossible choice. And the second is we want to see more proactive role of the federal government, all hands on deck to get everyone vaccinated. Those are the two big things we, we, I raised and, and I think are very important that we, we move on. And he said, I hear you on that, uh, Mr. Singh, I'll uh, absolutely do what you're asking me to do, right? That's, that was his response? Well, uh, he said he would uh, take, you know, my concerns back to the team. Um, and, and I said you know, very persistently that these are these are things that we need to do. These are things that are important for people. Uh, a lot of people are, are getting sick in workplaces and a lot of people can't choose to stay home because if they stay home, they're not getting paid and not getting paid and missing days of work means at the end of the month when they've got to make their bills, there's just not enough money. So for a lot of people, the fact that they're still going to work is a serious problem and can't be fixed unless we can cover that pay. And that's why it's so vital. And we got to find a way to get more people vaccinated more quickly. There's just, you know, we're seeing that the hardest hit communities 
are where there's the lowest rate right. of vaccination. Like that so can't continue. What if those, uh, I'm not sure, demands or suggestions, because you've already said you won't topple the government, uh, you won't allow the prime minister to have an election you say he wants. So what if those things you've said are absolute requirements for Canadians? What if they're not in the budget? It would just be, uh, it would just be another example of this government really failing, failing people. And it's particularly when we know that there is a program that we fought for that just needs to be improved and needs to be made better and more people will use it. We, we know that the uptake is in the $400 million range and the budget was approved for over $2 billion. Mm. So it's clear that the uptake is not where it should be. And really what that translates to is that people are going into work sick. We know that right now workplace transmission is, is the highest risk. Workers are getting sick and they're bringing the illness back and making their families sick. And they can't make that impossible choice. They can't okay. just say, I'm going to stay home if that means they're not going to get paid. So that's why this is so important. But and, and the cost of not doing anything would be that more people get sick when they go to work and, and maybe more people lose their lives. Right. That's something we can avoid. In a minority parliament, you, uh, you would in normal times have uh, a certain leverage as an opposition party to say, if you don't, uh, you know, put some of these measures in the budget, you can't count on my support. But having said that you won't topple the government, what compels the prime minister to, to adopt any of your ideas? Well, what should compel the prime minister is that uh, a lot of the things that we're fighting for are things that he promised to do in the first place. He promised childcare, he promised pharmacare, and the liberals have been promising these things for decades and they've broken those promises. At the end of the day, um, him failing uh, to do what I'm telling him to do is less important than the failure of falling through on what he committed to people. And, and that's really, that should be the motivation that he promises to people, he campaigned on it, and he should then follow through on it. So I'm hoping that that is the, the pressure. Right. I also want to make it really clear, the Liberals have also signaled that they want an election. I'm not going to give them an excuse to go to an election. Justin Trudeau wants one, he'll have to he'll have to go to, I guess it was going to be the Governor General, but in this case, the Chief Supreme Court right. Justice. And, and make that request because so, so I be, think it's the wrong thing to do. So to be clear, you're planning to support the budget next week no matter what's in it and whether you think it does enough for the country. Uh, I'm planning to use my position to be responsible and not put this country into an election. Uh, I'm looking at the reality of the third wave, field hospitals being set up in Ontario, ICU units being overrun across Canada, the third wave uh, spreading like like wildfire across Canada. And in that context, I will not be in any way responsible for calling an election. I, would, I think that would be irresponsible to do. It would be irresponsible and not a good leader to plunge our country into an election with how bad things are right now. From what I've heard from people, what I've heard from healthcare workers, it would be the wrong thing to do. Okay. So I will not be doing that. Let me drill down on uh, something you've raised here. And, uh, you've called for more active participation from uh, the federal government to, to get people vaccinated as we see these cases spike in the third wave of the pandemic. Uh, what greater role uh, could the federal government be playing here? Uh, they're bringing in the vaccines, they're trying to get them, they're distributing them to the provinces, but what specifically are you saying they should be doing more of? If you look at what we're going through, this is, a, this is a massive crisis, one of the biggest crises we've ever faced as a country. And I just don't believe, I don't accept that the federal government is doing everything possible to get people vaccinated. We saw that in the States, the federal government, in that case, the President Biden's administration, took a really hands-on approach, deployed the military, was involved in the vaccination process aggressively. We need to see that happen in Canada. It's just not good enough to sit back and say, well, I'm offered help. I believe the federal government has to play an active role. 
So uh, what, what are you saying? The federal government should order the, order the military into, let's say, the province of Ontario to speed up the vaccination process when, when Ontario says the problem isn't the speed of the vaccination process, it's the supply of vaccines. Well, there's certainly a problem with the supply, and, and that, that problem is, is lies squarely at the feet of the Liberal government, no doubt. But when uh, a massive amount of vaccine was available, there wasn't a plan in place to quickly vaccinate everybody. And, and there's still not a good plan in place to make sure the people who need it most are getting vaccinated. We know that there are hot uh, zones, areas, communities hard hit, and they're not getting vaccinated. We know in Toronto, for example, some of the poorest communities where there's the highest rate of covid are the lowest rate of vaccination. And some of the wealthiest communities that also have the lowest rate of COVID are where we're seeing the highest rate of vaccination. So it's also where the vaccine is going and where it's getting done, uh, where the vaccination is happening. Okay. I think that in communities that are hard hit, we need to be looking at uh, creative ways. Let's go door to door, go to warehouses and factory work sites that are hard hit and get everyone vaccinated. There's gotta be like, this is a crisis and the okay. approach has to be one where we're not limited by by saying okay i've done you know a gesture or two we have to take this seriously and save lives by by responding with the seriousness that's proportional to the crisis that we're going through all right uh, jagmeet singh uh, good to have you uh, uh, join me tonight thanks for talking to me and we'll talk next time thanks so much appreciate it a lot of happy air travelers in the country today filing claims for air canada refunds that refund guarantee is part of a multi-billion dollar rescue plan from the federal government and includes taking an equity stake in Air Canada. As part of the deal, Air Canada gets access to almost $6 billion in emergency financing. Some of that money will be used to help the airline repay more than $2 billion in refunds for prepaid fares. The federal government is also purchasing $500 million in Air Canada stock, giving the government of Canada a stake now in the airline. Executive compensation, it'll be capped at $1 million and regional routes cancelled during the pandemic, they'll be restored. So this deal is a big boost for Air Canada, its customers and its workers, but what about Canada's other airlines? Where's the deal for them? Let's bring in John Graddock. He's the Program Coordinator in Aviation Management at McGill University in Montreal and a former commercial airline industry worker himself. Uh, Mr. Graddock, thanks for uh, speaking with me today. Good to have you with us. We've known how bad things are for the airlines during the pandemic and the airlines have let us all know that. So how significant is this rescue package for Air Canada? It is significant. I think Air Canada has been doing a lot of work to try to uh, generate liquidity. They have uh, done a lot of work in terms of taking your assets, selling owned assets, and then leasing them back uh, to generate cash. So they had a significant cash portfolio already before this deal. Uh, and I think that um, Air Canada basically is looking at this additional liquidity as a way for them to stop this uh, fire sale and to maintain enough cash to be able to uh, you know, cash up to uh, the need for uh, an efficient air service when travel does return. Okay, Air Canada and other airlines have, uh, had been uh, vocally opposed to the notion of giving the government an equity stake as part of any rescue package, but that's what's happened here. So what do you think changed? Oh, I think the leadership at Air Canada really um, changed back when Mr. Rovanesca decided to leave and Mr. Russo showed up. I think that you know, Mr. Russo has been around the business a long time, uh, knows Air Canada, knows its capabilities. And Mr. Rovanescu did in fact draw and uh, last summer when he said under no circumstances would Air Canada consider an equity investment for meeting any of the conditions that the government had put forward. So, you know, with a change in leadership, 
new transport minister and Mr. Sabia picking up the portfolio. I think that uh, we saw a very, very different uh, mindset at Air Canada. Can, can you give us a, give us some insight, if you can, in, into the government's approach on this? Uh, I mean, why did it deal with Air Canada on its own instead of putting together a package for the whole industry? Or was it is it just too complicated to deal with uh, the carriers as one big group? Yeah, it's, it's complicated. I think that, you know, Air Canada being the proverbial 900-pound gorilla on this one, um, you take, you know, if you, if you solve the Air Canada riddle, which they did, uh, you're solving, you know, 80% of your puzzle. Um, the other carriers that are involved, um, are, you know, a bit more difficult. Um, you know, Porter, uh, Air, WestJet are very much private organizations that don't like any any type of government involvement. Um, so, you know, it's going to be a little difficult to negotiate a um, an equity participation. Uh, and I think with Air Transat, um, you know, any loan that you give to Air Transat is going to have to be really well secured because that's something that's going to be required of Mr. Savio saying, I want to protect my loans and I want to make sure you can repay it. So, you know, each one of the deals that they're, they're going to cut from now on in is going to get a bit more complicated. How, how big of a piece is the is the refund requirement? We heard all about that as a as a must have for the federal government during these negotiations. I mean, I mean essentially, Air Canada has been holding these customer payments for a year now. Uh, and as I understand it, they're going to they're going to access effectively the loans they're getting from the federal government to pay back the payments uh, to re- refund Canadians. Uh, uh, have you seen that before? Is that a normal kind of thing? That's that's, you know, whether that's explicitly in any of the other financing arrangements that you've seen in other carriers uh, around the world. It's not it never was that explicit as the way that Transport Canada and the ministers um, made it. Um, I think most of the other carriers around the world knew that in order for them to get any money, they have to, you know, clear the decks when it comes to refunds. Air Canada was very much uh, a stickler on this one. Uh, they used the uh, Canadian Transportation Agency oil in this one and basically said the CTA says it's okay for us to issue vouchers instead of cash refunds. We'll do that. We'll keep. We'll issue those vouchers. So that's what you know. That's what's happening now. I think as part of this deal, that they, you know, the money that is 1.4 billion, I believe, that's being earmarked for refunds. Is that the total amount owing? Probably less than 60% of what's owing. So Air Canada is going to throw in some cash. Federal government's going to throw in some cash, and that should solve the refund issue. Yeah, I think we we lost it for a second there. I think the total amount owing, I think, is somewhere around 2.3 uh, billion. And uh, so, and incidentally, Air Canada announced that uh, any Canadians who believe they have a, a refund coming from the airline can go online now, starting today, and make that claim. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've already been in line. I'm okay. Oh, there I'm you are. <laughs> All right. That's good to know. I'll, I'll let you know how I do. Yeah, let us know. We'll be back to, to say whether it's really working or not. Uh, look, WestJet has, has been talking as if it doesn't really need any help from the government, that market conditions are starting to improve. It's ready to reinstate routes and service. Uh, you know, um, is, is there any doubt that WestJet's going to end up, uh, you know, needing some sort of deal from the government, that that's going to get negotiated? Yeah, it's, 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 you know, WestJet's been pretty vocal about it. It's, you know, saying, well, we don't really need this, and we're just going to keep, you know, everything going to stating services. We're doing refunds. So we don't really need government cash to do any of that. We're doing it on our own. Uh, but if the government does make an offer saying, you know, here's some money, that has got some very attractive commercial rates to it, 1% interest 
um, you know, that might just generate some interest on the part of, of WestJet that has to deal with Onyx. And whether Onyx really wants to have additional debt on the balance sheet is going to be the question. So Onyx may be, you know, to in fact look at additional debt. And we know for a fact Onyx would not be participation by the government. Okay, uh, John Gretick, uh, thanks for your perspective on this tonight. Uh, good to talk to you. Take care, sir. Thanks a lot. Take care. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, I'm Peter Van Dusen. Thanks for watching.